0: Good morning, Mendocino County and beyond, and hello, Alicia. Thank you for joining me this morning. Alicia Bales, our program director, is honoring me by being my pitch partner today on this Pledge Drive edition of Wild Oak Living. We've got a great program coming up. We're going. To, I'm going to share with you a story from the future to celebrate Earth Day. It's a it's a, it's a story written for Earth Day, uh, and then we're going to be joined by Nolivia Rooks, who is a professor at Cornell University, and she has written a fascinating book about. About the uh, about the educational system and and uh, racial and and economic inequities of our education system and the solutions that she has that she is suggesting for how we can address that, and we're also going to talk about some other topics that she is researching uh, in. Uh, at cornell university so for example uh, cannabis legalizations and the racial equities connected with that food justice and some other topics it's going to be a fascinating discussion so please stay tuned for that and there's a local <laughs> angle to my guests too the book the book that we're going to be talking about is published in by cypress house which is a local Fort bragg publishing company this is something i wanted to say happy earth day and this is a letter from the future a letter from 2030. I found it so inspiring that I really want to share it with you for Earth Day. So this is a letter written from a, to a friend, and it says, "My dear friend, I'm writing to you from Queens. I still I'm still here, despite all my talk of getting out. The city looks a lot different in 2030. That's still nine years away for you. Yet a lot has happened in that time. I know things are a little dark for you in 2021." to think your beautiful baby boy just turned one after being born in the worst year most of us can remember we were already racing against time to protect our communities from climate impacts when the pandemic hit some leaders ignored the 2018 report that said we only had until 2030 to stop or at least slow global warming the ju- to jump start their economies they tried to resurrect coal and roll back environmental regulations then the floods came And the fires followed. The power outages didn't help. You left New York before it got bad here only to see how ferocious Mother Nature's war can be with the storms down south. Everywhere our leaders were forced to confront reality. The old ways weren't working anymore. They took the grief of that crisis and used it to spark joy and sow hope. In hindsight, we were lucky. Many creatures of this earth didn't live to see 2030 humans could not save the animals we damned but at least you and i are still here right some people though couldn't live with the destruction and chaos around them others had little choice when death came knocking i remember the last time i saw you we sat on your new deck thinking of the world your sweet curly haired boy was entering a world plagued with death deaths that lie at the feet of elected officials who ignored and denied the many crises we faced and who took every penny the fossil fuel industry gave them. But times changed, girl. Humans are finally learning to do more than survive. Humans are at last learning to thrive. The chains of the oil and gas industry still linger, but they're off. I like to think the tipping point was the Oscar winning documentary, A Gallon of Lies. Streaming everywhere, it brought to light the the way big oil manipulated science and advertising to deny climate change. More media, including TV news, finally began to make villains of oil company CEOs and showed the public that they were to blame for this crisis, not us. The public perception of these companies changed overnight. The U.S. federal government ended its annual $20 billion in direct subsidies to fossil fuel companies and diverted that money into clean energy and in bidding elected for donations especially not from the ones that created this mess they're now passing laws for people not corporations a number of states created laws to punish polluters and their toxic legacies State attorney generals wisely abandoned their respective wars on drugs and began looking toward the nation's true criminals. Instead of imprisoning black and brown bodies, they're now throwing selfish corporate executives behind bars. Still, prisons aren't what they used to be now that many cities direct some of the money for policing neighborhoods toward mental health and rehabilitation services for those who are incarcerated. Even so-called criminals deserve their humanity. Even they deserve an ounce of freedom. These days, utilities are no longer monopolizing. Pool roofs in the Navajo Nation are covered with solar panels, helping to finally power nearby homes where students only have been involved beyond the solar and wind we knew a decade ago. Offshore wind is finally taking off in the waters of Boogie, southeastern Long Island. The Great Lakes will soon boast sophisticated, intentionally positioned turbines that shouldn't harm any birds migrating across the region they'll bring clean energy to the heart of coal country where the mines are finally closed for good coal miners both young and old now have fully funded government benefits to reward them for the sacrifices they made they no longer have to foot the bill should they develop the miners curse of black lung in fact no one in america does anymore Congress has passed Medicare for All, and the government is taking special care of the communities that have borne the brunt of health costs of the never-to-be-forgotten fossil fuel sectors. Many families now have disposable income, thanks to the thriving green economy paying them a living wage. Blue-collar workers are especially respected for their crucial contribution to our new world. I have friends who recently moved to Louisiana for work. They'll be removing the abandoned smokestacks of plastic refineries in Cancer Alley. These are the in-demand jobs of the future. They don't require college degrees or that people go into thousands of dollars of debt. The training programs and certifications teach them all they need. I'm so jealous we didn't have something like this when we were growing up. A couple of years ago, decaying pipelines like the Dakota Access Pipeline started coming out of the ground. I witnessed the pipe removal and observed the ceremony to bless the land and repair the damage it had suffered led by Lakota and Dakota leaders in the Standing Rock Sioux tribe of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe and leaders from the Cheyenne River Sioux, Yangton Sioux and Ogwa Sioux tribes in their native languages, it was like nothing I had ever seen. Thousands who had come to protest almost fifteen years ago returned to pay their respects to the land and sacred burial grounds the pipeline had desecrated. The ceremonial fires burned throughout the night, coughing bits of flying ash. I never got to visit Standing Rock during the 2016 protests, but I imagine the feeling in the air was a lot like that. Steps like these have left the air so much more breathable, both inside and outside of our homes. And not just for the select few cities are removing lead pipes and asbestos in buildings and more mayors now recognize the financial benefits that come to us with good health. Though rural communities are still more car-dependent than cities, even people in working-class agriculture towns in what was once the Corn Belt can hop on a bus or bike to get around. E-bikes have become more common, too. We're not the only family on the block with one. Public-private partnerships had plenty to do with that. Local governments are helping employers purchase e-bikes for their staffs. Making space for bikes is cheaper than building a parking lot. Still, cars are essential to help elderly and disabled folks get around. There aren't as many cars, that's for sure. Food deserts are becoming rarer now that people are learning to grow their food again and without synthetic and toxic pesticides. With the death of the extractive economy came the rejuvenation of our public lands. The last of the uranium mines that once scoured the lands around the Grand Canyon are now are now closed. The Bear's Ears National Monument has been fully restored. Instead of names of Confederate leaders, outdoor spaces are taking on their traditional indigenous name chosen for them by some of their earliest inhabitants. I see these changes when I drive north of the city past Bear Mountain where you used to love hiking along the Hudson River, the US Military Academy at West Point's Lee Bear, Lee's Barracks is getting a new name. It's exciting to see so many glimmers of hope. They felt impossible even a few years ago. The new world is no longer on her way. She's no longer a distant whisper in our ears. No, she's here, loud and proud as can be. The future has never looked brighter. I can't wait for you and the little guy to get here. We'll need you all. Con mucho amor, your friend. This was a collective vision written by... um, um, the author is Yesenia Funes. She writes a newsletter called The Frontline, and uh, and she had she had has a long list of people join her in developing this vision. And what I love about this is that one of the reasons I do this radio program Wild Up Living is because I want to put out positive visions of of of, of real change, solutions oriented visions, and and that's why this this uh, essay inspired me, and I hope it inspires you too because the way we develop a positive future the way we build the positive future is by a positive vision you know you have to you have to know where you want to get to before you can head out <laughs> head out towards it i would like to now go to the next segment of Wildlife living this morning and that is uh welcoming my guest nuliva rooks as we just heard nuliva is Belvi rook's daughter Belvi was on my program uh a couple of years ago where we had a wonderful uh, was was um, that, that a lot of people really really loved, and uh, and now I'm so proud to welcome Nolivi Rooks to Wild Earth Living. Good morning, Nolivi, and thank you for your patience. Thank you, thank you so
1: much. You did very early. I clearly cannot add. I write about education, um, but cannot add the three hours. So I was up at like. Because <laughs> I was busy subtracting <laughs> instead of adding. Anyway, happy <laughs> to be here. I'm happy happy to be
0: here. <laughs> Thank you so much. Let me just give our, our listeners a little bit of a, a background on you. As you are an interdisciplinary scholar, at you are the uh, W.E.B. Du Bois Professor at at Cornell. And your work explores how race and gender both impact and are impacted by popular culture, social history, and political life in the United States. And rather than reading your your wonderful, impressive, long bio, maybe I would just uh, invite you to talk a bit about, um, you know, the work that you're doing and particularly what inspired you to write the book that we're going to be talking about today.
1: Yeah. So again, thank you so much for having me. I'm actually going to be in Mendocino next month, so um, I'll be sure to tune in uh, and listen a little, a little closer than I am now. Um, let's see. Inspired to write the book. So the the thing about my last book it's it's about uh, privatization and education and segregation and racism and. Um, was really me just trying to figure out what I was seeing um, as I taught my students at Princeton. At the time, I was on the faculty at Princeton, and I had all of these um, very earnest, um, very privileged white students um, who would, on the one hand, tell me they'd never been around any black people to speak of. They'd never been in vulnerable communities. They were from suburban and urban areas. Um, But all of a sudden, they were really, really, really interested in school segregation and educational inequality, and they wanted to help and wanted to to uh, fix what they saw as broken. And so as I tried to, to just sort of put that moment in context, uh, what we were seeing with some things that were happening, this uh, desire to help, um, I kept figure, finding that I needed some historical context to have it all make sense, um, to have it all not seem like it just sprang up um, out of our, our present. Um, and to see how, over time, some ideas about what education is, the use of education, the funding of education, who gets what kind of education, where that all comes from. So, um, so yeah, that's where, like, that's where the idea um, for the book, which is called "Cutting School: um, The Segrenomics of American Education."
0: And I want to talk about Segrenomics and, and what that means. I just wanted to share uh, uh, one of the uh, endorsements for your book is from Naomi Klein, which you know, who is somebody that a lot of our listeners are, are familiar with. And she writes about your book, An Astounding Look at America's Segregated School System, Weaving Together Historical Dynamics of Race, Class, and Growing Inequality into One Concise and Commanding Story. Cutting Schools Puts Our Schools at the Center of the Fight. For a new movement, and that's just one of the many glowing <laughs> endorsements for your book. Um, so let's talk about segronomics and and what this means, and 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 how you came to coin that term.
1: Yeah. So uh, with the when I, as I was researching the book, which actually ended up, you know, while I was trying to understand the 21st century, I ended up back in the 19th century, following the Civil War. Um, in the Reconstruction period. And it, that's when um, it, it, taxpayer supported compulsory education, the ways that we think about public education today, that we know that if it's state taxes or local taxes or federal taxes, there's some public money um, that goes into funding public education. And also today, um, Different states have laws about how long you need to go to school for that everybody's required um, to go for some period of time, Though we may have some differences about how long that is. So that comes out of um, the post reconstruction, out of the reconstruction era, the post Civil War era, when that's the first time that you had the federal government say, you know what, we're going to fund it for everybody. Um, and we're going to make it compulsory. Well, so as I was telling the story of, um, you know, segregation of education, how this thing developed, blah, blah, blah. Um, one of the things that I came to recognize is that segregation, which is also uh, an issue that we continue to struggle with today. Economic segregation, rural urban divides, um, racial segregation, the, the uh, kind of cultures, life, community, that, that grows up separate from other people, um, either by design or desire. Uh, but one of the things I started to to see, to think that I saw, and I started playing around with this, at every moment, There are um, forces and companies and businesses um, that are actually profiting from segregation. So while uh, following the 1950s, you know, we talked a lot at 1954 at the Brown v. Board of Education specifically to talk about um, the education part. You know, we we had a lot of focus on um, segregated schools are inherently unequal. Um, racially segregated schools requiring people of different backgrounds, skin colors, ethnicities, races to go to two schools by themselves. No, we're going to strike that down. And yet before that ruling and after, we have struggled mightily with figuring out um, how to bring those communities together, how to actually get rid of it. We've tried all kinds of stuff. Um, and it just hasn't really um, taken overall. You know, some places it's worked, but overall. Um, and so the segrenomics is a mashup of segregation and economics. And so part of what I talk about in the book is how for a lot of companies, a lot of businesses or, or states, um, segregation is actually profitable. Segregation is actually creating... Um, businesses and jobs and because you know if you think about uh segregation usually means that one group one side of whatever that line is whatever that that equation that line is um is is doing pretty well and the other one is struggling more if you do kind of rural urban the amount of money that's put into rural school districts often pales in comparison to the money that goes into urban school districts, like per per pupil um, kind of spending. You do it for race, if you do it for economics. Um, and so I, I, I uh, have come to believe in, and do believe that part of the reason this is a divide that we recognize um, doesn't work for everyone, and yet it, it continues the way it does, is that there's some economic uh, benefit that that people empower that some people actually extract from that and so it makes it even more difficult for us to uh, figure out how to get rid of it long long answer of saying i mashed up segregation and economics to come up with segrenomics
0: and it you know reading reading about about this this concept was such an eye opener for me because you know i the common the common thinking i i guess is or maybe maybe it's just me that i'm thinking that but um you know um segregation has to obviously has to do with racism and racial inequality and it also has to do with uh, with, with economic differences like you said right with how much funding is 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 made available to to uh, uh, you know to various school districts and and you know the kind of teachers they get and the quality of the curriculum and there's so many there's so many factors but what you know and so my thinking was well you know if if the funding were equal and if you know if you put more money into it that that could solve the problem but you have some examples into your book in your book about how Uh, just you know just building replacing dilapidated schools for example with new schools uh you know in underfunding district underfunded districts that a lot of the things that that had to do with funding actually didn't work and that one of the reasons it didn't work is because of of what you described the the economic interests that that you know that what they they want the money but they don't want to use the money to do away with segregation Great. Well, one of the
1: things, at least in terms of racial segregation, um, that I find again going back to the to the nineteenth century, um, is there's always been this call to educate um, uh, black kids in a in an idiosyncratic way, in a way that's completely different from the ways that um, we think that wealthy privileged, higher status students should be educated. So in the 19th century, there was just this big call um, that that rose up around vocational education. There's absolutely nothing wrong with vocational education. I am not opposed to vocational education. However, so much of the funding for schools at all, if you wanted any kind of state funding, if you wanted your child to get an education and you were um, of African descent, the only education that anybody would pay for for you was vocational. Um, and that's not the kind of education that the founding fathers thought their kids should have, captains of industry thought their kids should have, politicians, right? I mean, it was an idiosyncratic Form so it's like yes we will we will give this to you and we are mandated to pay for it for you it's not going to look like the way that we educate others just sort of jumping forward over decades to not go decade by decade with how that looks you know today you have calls for. Um, Uh, educating uh, uh, black children primarily in some states primarily through remote education. Even before the pandemic, there were some states and some regions um, where the fastest growing school districts you know, the 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 if you if you thought about them as a district, the ones that were growing fastest were the ones that were using online education. And overwhelmingly who it was aimed at was black children and poor kids. The issue is not the technology, the issue was these kids were doing horribly like, in using these forms, horribly, failing everything. And yet there were always calls for it to grow. Um, or charter schools um, are, are often prescribed, which are publicly funded, privately run schools, Where often um, uh, the, the largest clientele who they, who they serve are uh, children of color who are title one, who are below the poverty line, um, whose families are below the poverty line. That's like 90% of the children in the country who go to charter schools. The things that charter schools focus on are just different. Like they want, they want just high test scores, and they learn by rote, and they learn by. Um, but the ways that you see high-performing school districts, wealthier private schools. Um, that's not how they teach their kids. That's not how those kids are taught. So the the uh, part of the story became education in the United States for indigenous kids, for uh, the children of immigrants, for black children, um, is always a series of experiments. It's always this idiosyncratic, this is enough for you. Um, You're in such a crisis. Do, do with this. Um, and we rarely ask, why not just educate the most vulnerable the way that we educate the wealthy? Like, what is all of this? We need these these particular forms as if children who are poor or who are of color, um, who are indigenous or who are immigrant are not... Uh, Children are not uh, desirous of and capable of uh, the same kind of intellectual engagement and stimulation or deserving of um, the same thing that the wealthiest kids get. Um, so that's my basic argument. That it's just not rocket science. Just educate everybody the same. Segregation keeps that from happening. I'm not sure it has to. Mm-hmm.
0: Let me just take a moment uh, and take a little break here in, and and remind you, dear listeners, that you are listening to Wild Oak Living here on Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX and Z. This is Johanna Wilder. I bring you this program every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. If you have any suggestions or want to offer feedback or questions about any of the programs, you can send an email to contact at wildoak.org. That's contact at wildoak.org. So I just want to remind listeners my guest today is is Noelevieve Rooks she is a professor at W.E.B. Du Bois professor at Cornell University and she does a lot of interesting work which we will talk about in the remainder of our program as well but one of the things that she's that we're talking about now is her book called Cutting School The Segronomics of American Education and this is an example of the kinds of programs that I love sharing with you dear listeners I love sharing um thoughtful analysis and inspiring solutions you know ideas about how things can be made better and how we can build community and how we can overcome some of the things that keep us from building community and and today's interview i think is another example for that and this is the kind of um, public community radio that i think is worth supporting and that's why we're here today That's why we're doing the flash drives because a couple times a year we got to come to you and we want to come to you to support us because that's how KZYX got on the air through community support and that's how KZYX stays on the air with your support and with your donations. I would like to especially
1: (laughs) support community radio, support community radio and independent journalism. Democracy cannot survive without it. We will not progress without community radio and independent journalism so open up your credit cards change purses shake out those quarters uh, and and support during the pledge drive. I'm sorry, I cut you off. I got, <laughs> I got you, Enjoy. No,
0: please, please keep going. Yeah, I love it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, here's how you can do that. You can go online on the web, kzyx.org, and you can click on the donate button on the upper right-hand corner of our homepage, and there's an online donation form there, making it as quick, easy, and painless as we can for you to join, be a member, be a listener supporter of this community radio station, KZYX.
0: Let's go back to my interview today. By the way, just to remind you, this is Wild Oak Living. This is Johanna Wilder. I'm joined in the studio by Alicia Bales, the KZWX program director. The amazing KZWX program director. I'm just, I am just every day. I'm, I'm I'm grateful that you're there, Alicia, and everybody else who's who's running this station. You are all doing such an amazing job. You know, with 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 a very with a very um, Constrained budget, doing these amazing things, and with with the technology that you know that could deserve that deserves a lot of upgrading. <laughs> I know that's one of the challenges is, is is technology that constantly requires maintenance and upgrades, and so those are all really good reasons for you to pledge your support. So let's go back to my interview with No No Levy Rooks. Thank you so much for your patience, No Levy. Uh, I I warned you in advance that this would be a pledge track interview, <laughs> so then. Um, but um, I'd, li- I'd love to talk about some of the uh, other topics that, that you are working on in terms of your research and your studies. Um, and, and this uh, and the t- two topics that come to mind is the whole uh, concept of food justice, and then if there's time also, the, whole, the idea about uh, cannabis legalization and, and and equity and 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 maybe there's even a way to connect those two. I, I would leave that up to you. I would just invite you and open the stage for you to share with us uh, your thoughts on that. And just to remind listeners, uh, Nolwenn Rooks is the W.E.B. Du Bois Professor at Cornell University, and she has. Uh, she has written a book and my ipad just closed up sorry and Hody she has School, written a book called the Economics
1: of american education i have the i have the title ready <laughs> <All right. laughs> open your ipad i have it right here for you <laughs> um yeah i can actually connect those things so part of um What I'm interested in is space, space and money, right? Like that's the term, segronomics. Like what is space um, in the the way that we divide it up? Um, How does capital? I mean, that's not just money. I'm interested in talking about how capitalism um, underdevelops. Um, how it's a weapon, how it develops for some and underdevelops Um, others kind of biting off of a book called How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by by a man named Walter Rodney, the late um, Walter Rodney. So space and money. Um, And so for both food justice as well as cannabis legalization, what I'm looking at um, are how the, the racial politics embedded Um, In the rise of people wanting to talk about uh, urban farming in particular, so the food justice that I focus on is this kind of rise of urban farming communities. And it's become like a huge business. People always often talk about urban farming as just sort of, oh, some plucky neighbors got together and decided to grow some rutabagas to feed their communities. And isn't that great? And what I started to find is that does happen. There really is just vacant land. Sometimes people just get together and grow things for their community, for their friends and family. Um, But increasingly... There's a, a hedge fund, Wall Street, um, big global capital has discovered these little mom and pop kind of um, operations and funnel money into some of them in order to raise property values in certain neighborhoods where they've bought a bunch of you know property that's often distressed, often below market value. I mean, urban farms come up in communities that are... Um, struggling in urban area in cities right they're kind of struggling because that's where there's land that's where there's vacant property that's where you know you can grow and i started to find that as much as you feel good about people growing for their communities or people addressing food deserts there's this whole other industry that revolves around it that many of us just don't even know um exists that is about generating profit for these these kind of large, um, concerns, so that's one. That's one line, and then with the cannabis, really, what I started to look at is how uh, in urban areas, again, both the environmental impacts of grow houses. Um, you know, pe- people talk about uh, New York just legalized recreational cannabis, and. Um, Here, as well as every place else in California, that you know, when that started, in Denver, in Colorado, when that was getting going, like in Illinois, like every place that I've sort of looked at, the whole narrative around why cannabis legalization is urgent has this whole social justice and racial justice piece to it that is You know, people are, it it will address mass incarceration. It will create tax dollars that will address uh, inequalities. It's a way to kind of even out um, a number of things. Uh, Again, where uh, grow facilities versus dispensaries get placed, um, places, Unequal burdens on people, depending on where they live. But also the big the big finding for for me the big finding is that every place cannabis has been legalized, um, arrests of Black and Latinx young people has gone through the roof, um, which is almost counterintuitive because so often what you're hearing is this is a way to reduce uh, the relationship of of you know selling drugs to incarceration about every single place it it doubles and triples (laughs) um, uh, fairly fairly quickly for a number of reasons one the can the regulation of the cannabis industry puts um, getting it out of the reach of of many low-income people it's just simply more expensive to have to go to a dispensary to buy because of the taxes that come along with it. So often the the um, the street sales don't go anywhere because poor people cannot afford to go to the dispensaries um, very often. So the street sales continue um, even though it's legal, but selling outside of the regulated dispensary industry is illegal still, even though cannabis, um, is is legal for recreational use and often uh, having a, a ounce or less, some amount or less will just be a, a misdemeanor, you're still not supposed to sell it. It's still a federally regulated drug outside of. Um, and so, what, part of that story that I'm um, that I'm un- unraveling and telling um, is just what we don't see. Much like segregation, it's something we see but don't see. Um, with these, with these, uh, with cannabis and space and policing, um, I think we we don't see how it could be possible that the legalization of cannabis could actually lead to increased scrutiny. Um, An involvement uh, with the criminal justice system for people who simply can't afford it um, any other way. So, yeah, those are those two stories. Oh, you're muted. Johanna is talking to me. Keep but forgetting she- there she is. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I think those are the three most uh, three most common words in the English language right now. You're muted. <laughs>
1: my students tell me regularly when i remember to turn it off you know we're all teaching via zoom and when i remember to to mute my thing i'm constantly like talking and lecturing and i'm going and they're kind of like (laughs) <laughs> yeah. i'm gesturing the can't hear for for your listeners who don't know what i'm doing
0: um, but my, yeah, my she, daughter my daughter is also a university professor and she, she, you're lucky that you can even at least see your students she said most of her students don't even turn on their cameras anymore yeah
1: yeah <laughs> a lot of mine don't either um we try to get them to because it creates community but for some you know they're just like they want to lay in their bed and uh, kind of just open an eye that's unwashed and you know like (laughs) listen in like they don't really want to get up and be at the ready that's really why they want the cameras (laughs) mine i can't speak to other people's students mine that is what is happening (laughs) yeah
0: you know i i i I want to just comment on the two things that you just talked about food justice and and cannabis legalization because as with as with your concept of segregationomics and what keeps segregation going you've just blown me away with 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 these two concepts that you know i was completely unaware of the engagement of hedge funds in urban food production and uh you know the fact that even though cannabis is that legalization of cannabis has made it unaffordable and therefore by its very nature it's keeping alive the illegal cannabis market Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know i mean if you thought about it you might have arrived at that conclusion but the fact that that you know that i mean it just nevertheless it's just a really surprising discovery Um, and that's you know that's the kind of information i think that you only get on radio programs like this right this is why
1: you need to call that number right now you need to go on that website you need to hit donate now or you know swing by the studio and just drop off a wad of cash they will not turn you away um however you get it to them keep the program on the air keep the station on the air and it's a way to build community You know, you can feel like you are a part of what is happening if you donate.
0: This is community radio. Um, Most of the public affairs program, all of the public affairs programs actually, are brought to you by volunteer programmers. We don't get paid for doing this. We we make... We contribute this kind of uh, programming to our community, to the radio station. And we do that because we hope it helps towards building community and connecting us with each other. And your way to connect with us, besides listening to us, is to support us, to become a member of the radio community. Go online to KZOX.org. And pledge whatever you can. Ten dollars a month is a really popular pledge. Some people do fifteen or twenty dollars a month. A dollar a day, which is thirty dollars a month, is a, is a really great way to go. Um, we have thank you gifts available. So, for example, our beautiful organic uh, cotton face masks that uh, that Alicia is modeling for us right now <laughs> on the radio. <laughs> And uh, we have uh, some KZOX socks. We have a tote bag. We have this great book uh, about the four women who founded NPR that is available for a $10 a month pledge. There are many reasons to pledge. I think the most important reason is for you to decide, yep, I listen to Wax all the time. I got to support it. I got to be a part of this radio community. I would like, you to, I would like to invite you to come in and, and, and leave us with some closing words here. So
1: let me say one of the things is we look around the country right now uh, is we see an assault on voting rights an assault of the assault that we're seeing. We're seeing state legislatures all over the place make it make uh, voting more difficult Um, for listeners who are um, uh, of a mind to stand up for democracy, stand up for voting rights.
0: Thank you so much, Nolivi Rooks, for joining us on Wild Earth Living this morning. Uh, your book again is called Cutting School, The Segronomics of American Education. Nolivi's name is spelled N-O-L-I-W-E. Or the last name rooks r-o-o-k-s um where where can people uh, go if they would like to connect with you or find out more about your work what would you recommend as a as a website so I have or a
1: website <laughs> at noliwerooks.com n-o-l-i-w-e-r-o-o-k-s.com and if you have social media minded people um i'm active on twitter at at n rookie n-r-o-o-k-i-e um on Twitter. I'm on Facebook too, but less. <laughs> okay.
0: Good for you. <laughs> thank you, it And thank you. Thank you to your mother as well for supporting us. <laughs> I will tell her. <laughs> thank you. Bye bye. Thank right. you so much for having me. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I'll be back in two weeks. And thank you, Alicia, for joining us this morning. Thanks a lot, Johanna. Take care.